Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Well, for four weeks, some four weeks, we've been looking at different passages of Scripture that shed light on what we see going on in our state, our nation, and world. And over the last two weeks... (laughs) If you pay any attention at all to the news, we've seen our nation just continue uh, down the path of destruction. And the federal government now is is trying to spend us into financial collapse with a $3.5 trillion socialist spending spree. The Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, has plans now to use the FBI to crack down on parents who stand up to woke school boards, comparing these concerned moms and dads to domestic terrorists. The radicalized Justice Department plans to bring in the FBI to prosecute parents for protesting against the likes of critical race theory and and, uh, transgender ideology that's being taught to their children in schools across America. And then there's lying Anthony Fauci, the disgraced director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and, and the chief medical advisor to the president, he's, he's saying, as if anyone still takes this man seriously, but he's saying that it's too soon to tell whether people should avoid gathering for Christmas this year in the midst of the ongoing COVID-19 panic. Pandemic, I mean. In the state of Texas, you know, we all applauded the Uh, the uh, abortion law that they passed. Well, an Obama-appointed federal judge granted a temporary injunction on August 6th against that anti-abortion law, which had already drawn national attention after it survived judicial scrutiny by the Supreme Court. In the state of California, our far-left Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, announced Last Friday, his intentions to make the COVID-19 vaccine mandatory for in-person learning at public and private schools alike in the state. This is the first mandate of its kind in the nation. Of course, he always wants to be the first when it comes to these radical ideas. And this new mandate will take effect the the semester following formal approval of the COVID-19 vaccines for younger age groups by uh, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, starting with grades 7 through 12, followed then by kindergarten through 6th grade, with rare exemptions for religious or medical reasons. And of course, what's going to happen is this is going to cause even more parents to pull their kids out of public school and to homeschool them, and then they're going to come after the homeschoolers. And of course, this past Thursday, Pfizer asked the Food and Drug Administration to approve its COVID-19 vaccine on an emergency basis for the some 28 million American children ages 5 to 11. They could care less 
about the health of our children. All they see is dollar signs to the tune of billions. The Los Angeles City Council on August 6th approved one of the strictest COVID-19 vaccination mandates in the country requiring proof of vaccination to enter indoor restaurants, movie theaters, salons, shopping centers, and many more indoor venues. So people are going to have to provide vaccination proof at gyms, sports arenas, museums, spas, indoor government facilities, malls, restaurants, and bars. And for people with religious or medical exemptions, they're going to have to provide negative COVID-19 tests within 72 hours of entry. And according to the ordinance, which, uh, or according to the ordinance, which doesn't make any mention of natural immunity, which is afforded by a previous COVID-19 infection. And so welcome to 1930s Nazi-type discrimination. And of course, none of this is about health and safety. Rather, it's about the government gaining more and more control over the people. On the way to men's prayer meeting yesterday morning, I had on the radio the local call-in talk uh, program, and the host was lamenting, you know, what's happening to our country? You know, what's going on in the nation? And of course, in one sense, we understand that sentiment when you look at where we're at as a nation. This certainly is not the country that we grew up in and, and have come to love. And so we understand people wondering what in the world is going on. I mean, it seems to have happened so quickly, I mean, almost overnight. But in reality, it's been coming for a long, long time. And of course, we're saddened by what we see going on in our country. I mean, our nation is, is literally being destroyed. I mean, its foundations are rotten, and it's crumbling from within, and, and that's hard to watch. And on a strictly human level, we would say, well, of course, it's because of, uh, you know, this uh, liberal agenda that uh, this current administration has, that our current state government has, and, and on a human level, I mean, that would be true. But that's not the ultimate cause of what's going on. And as Christians, it should be no surprise to us what's going on because the Word of God gives us insight into what we're seeing. As I said two weeks ago, the fundamental problem in our nation is not political. Now, the ultimate cause of all that we see going on in our nation is spiritual in nature. Bottom line, it's the result of man's rejection of God and His Word. And this rejection is the outward manifestation of the hatred for God and for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that fills the hearts of unbelievers. And the ultimate reason for such hatred for God and the things of God by so many in our country, even those who profess to be religious, is the fact that they do not know God. As Jesus said, they do not know the one who sent me. I mean, this is the fundamental problem of people in the world. They do not know the true and the living God. The Bible tells us that uh, men are haters of God. You know, the, the the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Unbelievers are dead in trespasses and sin, alienated and hostile in mind, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. 
And all people are sinners by nature. They're born into a state of rebellion against God. So there is this native, natural, deep-seated rebellion against God in the heart of man, and they hate God for exposing their sin. I mean, we are living in a post-Christian, secular, humanistic, pagan society. And as the psalmist said in Psalm 2, which we looked at four weeks ago, the nations are raging, people are plotting in vain. Governments have set themselves against God and against Christ. And unless God intervenes, things were just going to get worse and worse. But these difficult times have an eternal purpose. We have to remember that. And this is merely a part of God's unfolding plan. I mean, as Christians, we know where the world is heading, don't we? I mean, all that we see going on in our country and the world is, is merely uh, conditioning. It's conditioning people to eventually accept a global government, a one-world government led by one ruler, the Antichrist. This is all conditioning for that, however long in the future that may be. But the thing we have to remember is all is not lost because there's always hope because Christ is king. And he has in the past brought great spiritual awakenings in this country. And we should pray that God will do it again. And we are and we have been. And so rather than living in anxiety and fear and in a constant state of anger and turmoil, We can rejoice in the fact that all of this means that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And we are that much closer to the imminent return of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so regardless of what happens in our state and nation, our responsibility is the same as it's always been. To love God, to become like Him, to serve Him, and to faithfully proclaim the gospel because people need to hear the gospel. Because Christ is the only hope for our nation. We can't lose sight of that. I mean, as as a church, that is our primary mission, to live for God, to love Him, to proclaim the gospel. I mean, certainly, and if you've gone to this church very long, you know this. I mean, certainly as good citizens, we're we're to be good stewards of the citizenship God has given us. And so as good citizens, we're to do all that we can to resist evil and seek to change things in our society and our government for the good. But at the same time, we are always praying to the Lord, interceding on behalf of our nation, for in its well-being, we will find our well-being. But bottom line is, we, we live our lives for Christ. We proclaim the gospel to those who are lost, that they might be saved, seeking to advance Christ's kingdom to bring about lasting change. But we can't live with our heads in the sand. We can't be ignorant of the times that we live in. We have to be understanding of the times that we live in, so we'll know, uh, know what we ought to do. We have to recognize that as a nation, we have rejected God and His Word, and we are merely reaping the consequences of that as we continue in a downward spiral toward destruction. And make no mistake about it, that's where we're headed. Because as a nation, we have abandoned God, and God has returned the favor. And we are not the first nation this has happened to. We see this thing, the same thing throughout history. 
In Acts chapter 14, verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, In past generations, he, speaking of God, so in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. I mean, this is the story of all the nations throughout history. They, they go their own way. God allows them to walk in their own ways. So like the nations of the past, we have followed the same cycle of having the truth of God, rejecting that truth, and then being abandoned by God. You say, well, what do you mean being abandoned by God? Well, what that means is he has lifted his hand of restraining grace, permitting us to go our own way, abandoning abandoning us to suffer the effects, the consequences of our sinful choices. You see, God will abandon individual sinners as well as nations to their own sinful choices and the consequences of those choices. And there is no doubt that God has abandoned America in this way. And no place in Scripture more directly addresses this abandonment and its consequences than does Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. I mean, this passage more than any other explains the moral chaos and collapse that we are experiencing in our nation at this very moment. And it's actually something we've been experiencing for some time now. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And over the next few weeks, Lord willing, we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. I'm going to ask you to stand as I read our passage. I'm going to read the entire passage, though we're going to spend all of our time this morning just in verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, beginning now in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. These verses are so relevant to our time and to our lives because they describe to a T what we see happening in our nation. We are experiencing God's wrath in our culture, that wrath expressed by God when he turns his back on a society and and it is given up to evil and it's set on a course that leads to perversions and ends in a debasement in which people call good evil and evil good. One man said, this present revelation of God's wrath, though limited in its scope, should be proof to us that we are indeed children of wrath and that we need to turn from our present evil path to the Savior. And that's certainly what needs to happen in this country. Men and women need to turn to the Savior. But let's set the context here in which Paul wrote these verses. In the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1, what we have is Paul's introduction to the book. In verses 1 to 7, we have his salutation. In verses 8 to 15, his explanation of why he was writing. And then in verses 16 and 17, Paul states his main theme. And of course, that is the gospel. The gospel in which the righteousness of God is revealed. And now, after introducing the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel, a theme that Paul will come back to in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 21, Paul now begins to describe for us the nature and extent of human sin and guilt in the heart of every human being, Jew and Gentile alike. And so from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, The Apostle Paul is presenting overwhelming evidence showing how desperately man needs the righteousness that only God can provide. And throughout this entire section, there is an emphasis on the wrath of God. And so it's interesting, even though Paul has just mentioned the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, and the righteousness of God, which men so desperately needs, he doesn't even begin to talk about how man can be saved and receive this righteousness of God until chapter 3, verse 21. Instead, he begins with the wrath of God. And of course, the wrath of God is, is a difficult subject. And to say that the concept of God's wrath is out of sync with our modern world is to state the obvious, right? I mean, even many who claim to be evangelicals object to and and minimize any mention of God's wrath. They may say that they believe it because it's in the Bible, but they're embarrassed by it. Because when you talk about God being a God of wrath, people often get very disturbed. And they don't understand how God can be a God of anger and a God of wrath. But 
That's because they do not understand the true nature of God. And the Bible makes it clear that justice, wrath, and judgment are as much divine attributes as love, mercy, and grace. I mean, all of God's attributes are perfectly balanced in his divine nature. And the fact of the matter is, if God had no righteous anger and wrath, he wouldn't be God. If God had no righteous anger and wrath, he certainly wouldn't be loving. Because a truly loving God never overlooks sin. God would not be God without uh, his righteous anger and wrath, just as he would not be God without his mercy, grace, and love. God perfectly hates just as he perfectly loves, perfectly loving righteousness and perfectly hating evil. Speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. You see, one of the great problems in Christianity today is a failure to preach and teach the wrath of God and the condemnation that it brings upon all unforgiven sin. Most contemporary evangelism purposely avoids that theme. We talk about love and happiness. We talk about forgiveness and abundant living. We talk about joy and peace. I mean, that's what we offer people and ask them if they wouldn't like to have all of those things. And who in their right mind wouldn't want those things? But we very rarely talk about God's judgment. And I wonder in all of the times that you have presented the gospel to someone, how many times did you introduce it by saying, by the way, did you know that the wrath of God is being revealed against all of your ungodliness? By the way, did you know that you are presently under the wrath of God, and if you die in your sins, you will experience God's eternal wrath? See, we're so afraid of offending someone that we bypass the starting point. The watered-down, sentimental, felt-needs gospel that is often presented today is nothing like the gospel that Jesus and the Apostle Paul proclaimed. Today, we focus on all of the benefits that result from a genuine faith in Christ, but that's not the whole picture of God's plan of salvation. That's only part of it. That's only part of the truth. It's an improper, imbiblical representation of what it is to be a Christian, what salvation is, what the gospel is. We must also tell them they've sinned against a holy God to whom they are accountable and who will judge their sin. We must tell them about the wrath of God or they'll never understand the profound reality of God's love. And that's why the word love doesn't appear in the book of Romans until the fifth chapter. The biblical order in any gospel presentation is always first the message of condemnation and then the offer of forgiveness. First the bad news of guilt and then the good news of grace. 
Because it would be absolutely pointless to talk about getting right with God until we realize that man is not right with God. I mean, you have to diagnose the disease before the cure means anything. I mean, a person has no reason to seek salvation from sin if he doesn't know he's condemned by it. He has no reason to want spiritual life unless he realizes he's spiritually dead. And this, then, is why Paul begins this section with the wrath of God. He is determined for us to know that before we can understand the grace of God, we must first understand his wrath. That before we can understand the meaning of the death of Christ, we must first understand why man's sin made that death necessary. That before we can begin to comprehend how loving, merciful, and gracious God is, we must first see how rebellious, sinful, and guilty, unbelieving man truly is. But people don't want to hear they're sinners. Because people basically think they're good. And certainly there's relative goodness in the world. Certainly people do good things. There's goodness in people. But not goodness that's going to make them acceptable and right with God. Not goodness that's going to take care of their sin. When it comes to our goodness making up acceptable to God, God says, you can basically take every good thing you've done, every good thing you're most proud of, and he says, you know what all of that goodness amounts to in my eyes? God says, filthy rags. Filthy, stinking rags. And it'll never make a person acceptable to God. One man said, The whole message and purpose of the loving and redeeming grace of God offering eternal life through Jesus Christ rests upon the reality of man's universal guilt of abandoning God and thereby being under his sentence of eternal condemnation and guilt. The beginning of the gospel and the proper preparation for the announcement of grace begins with wrath. This is what Paul begins with. Before ever detailing God's way of salvation, he first sets out to convince people of their own lost condition and their need for a Savior. The gospel always begins with God, who He is. He's a holy, just, righteous God. He is our Creator and we are, therefore, we are accountable to him. And he has the right then to tell us how we're to live. And man doesn't live that way. Man has sinned against God because all of our sin is primarily first against God. So man has sinned against God and stands condemned before him, deserving of nothing but an eternal hell. That's where the gospel starts. Because if they don't understand that, they, they will never understand or appreciate the grace and mercy and love of God. And so before the righteousness of God is revealed in salvation, we see God's wrath revealed in condemnation. And as Paul lays all of this out, it explains for us, uh, again, the moral chaos and collapse that we are experiencing in our nation at this very moment. As a nation, we are under the wrath of God. So let's begin now in verse 18. Let me read that verse again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The word for at the beginning of the sentence connects us to verses 16 and 17 where Paul says that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. 
And why is that important? For or because verse 18 tells us the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And so the idea is simple, but it's very sobering. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of the human race. And the human race deserves the wrath of God. So the reason we need God to reveal his righteousness to us in the gospel and give it to us as a gift through faith is because we are ungodly and unrighteous and we resist the truth and unrighteousness and therefore God's wrath is against us. We need righteousness. Righteousness that that we don't have. We don't have any righteousness of our own. And God's wrath is being poured out on us in our unrighteousness. You say, well, is there any hope? Well, of course there is. The gospel is the power of God to save because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And we can have a righteousness that is not our own, namely God's. But we start with the fact that all men are born into the world as sinners. We are sinners by nature and by practice. Therefore, we are all under the wrath of God. So Paul begins by saying, for the wrath of God. And please notice, it is the wrath of God. So what we're speaking about here is divine wrath, the wrath of God. And that is very important. And let me say this at the outset. When we think about God's wrath, we need to get rid of any human notions of someone with a bad temper who flies off the handle over the slightest provocation. God's wrath is not the momentary, emotional, often uncontrollable outburst of anger which human beings are prone to. It is not a sort of divine temper tantrum or an irrational rage aimed at people who God doesn't like. It's not that at all. And we are speaking about the wrath of God Almighty. And therefore, like every other attribute of God, it is completely righteous in its character. It is perfect and holy as He Himself is perfect and holy. His wrath is righteous. It is a holy wrath. But what exactly is the wrath of God? Well, this word wrath, it refers to a settled determined indignation. It's a strong, settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's very nature. One commentator said, God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. And so God's wrath then is His holy righteous indignation and hatred of sin, his refusal to condone it or come to terms with it, it is the intense, settled, determined, active opposition of a righteous, holy God against sin expressed in divine judgment. I mean, God is holy. And in his holiness and justice, he must deal with sin accordingly. And his wrath is the necessary response of a righteous God to man's sin. And as I said a few moments ago, if God had no righteous anger and wrath, he would not be God, just as surely as he would not be God without his mercy, grace, and love. 
And so we are speaking here about the wrath of God. And now Paul says the wrath of God, notice, is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This word revealed is the very same word and tense as in verse 17. And there, in verse 17, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Here, it's the wrath of God that's being revealed. And in both cases, it's, it's a present tense, continuous action. So literally, it would read, the wrath of God is continually being revealed, or it is perpetually being manifested. In other words, it is happening now. God's wrath, according to Paul's teaching, is both present and also future. You see, men, men face the consequences for their sins in eternity, certainly, but also in the present time. There is a day of wrath coming, a day of wrath coming in the future at the final judgment. But before the final outpouring of wrath, God's wrath is also presently and continuously being revealed against sinners. And this word revealed means to uncover, to bring to light, to make manifest, to make known. And so God's wrath is constantly being made known. It is constantly being made manifest. It is constantly being revealed against sinners. And notice, if you will, the verse says, it is constantly being revealed from where? From where? Heaven. Heaven is the source. The wrath of God comes right from heaven. It's coming right from the very throne of God. And heaven reveals God's wrath in two ways. First, indirectly. Indirectly through the natural consequences of violating God's universal moral law. I mean, when God made the world, He built into it certain moral and physical laws, didn't He? And if you violate these laws, there are consequences. So, you go 80 miles an hour in a car and you run into a concrete wall, a law immediately takes effect, right? The law of, irresistible, of an irresistible force and an immovable object. And there are consequences, severe consequences. In the same way, when a, person's, when a person sins, when they break God's moral law, there is a price. There are built-in consequences. You may choose your sin, but you will not choose the consequences. And so in this sense, God is not specifically intervening, but rather is letting the law of moral cause and effect work. Secondly, God's wrath is revealed directly through his personal intervention. Of course, we understand it was revealed this way in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and immediately the death sentence was passed, the earth was cursed, and they were thrown out of paradise. It was revealed this way in the flood when God drowned the entire human race except for eight people. It was revealed in the drowning of Pharaoh's army. It was revealed this way in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire from heaven, just to name a few. These things clearly demonstrate God's direct personal intervention. But by far, the greatest revelation of God's wrath 
was when he poured out his wrath upon his own son on the cross when the Lord Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world and bore the full force of God's furious wrath as its penalty. And so the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven directly and indirectly throughout human history. But we also need to understand that there are a number of different aspects to the wrath of God. And I'm very thankful to John MacArthur for this. First, there is what we would call eternal wrath. This is the punishment that God brings upon unbelieving sinners forever in hell. That's eternal wrath, and the Bible speaks often of that. Second is eschatological wrath, which is a future wrath that will fall on this earth prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. And this wrath is described for us by Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. It's also uh, described for us in detail in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 where we read about the breaking of seven seals, the blowing of seven trumpets, the, the dumping of seven bowls of wrath upon the earth after which the Lord Jesus Christ returns. That's eschatological wrath. It's yet to come in the future. And there's a third kind of wrath, and, and we could call it cataclysmic wrath. That is the, the wrath of God which produces calamity in the world. I mean, for example, we already mentioned the flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Throughout history, there have been these cataclysmic judgments that sweep away thousands upon thousands of people. And that's a form of God's wrath against sinful man. There is also a, a fourth kind of wrath, consequential wrath. Uh, you would call this sowing and reaping wrath. It's, it's built into the life that we live. Just spoke about it when, when we talked about God's uh, wrath uh, indirectly. It's just the, the natural end of patterns and choices of sin. You violate God's law, you pay a price. It's, it results in certain consequences. You know, whatsoever a man sows, what did Paul say? That's what he's going to reap, right? There are built-in consequences. And as a nation, we have sown to the wind, haven't we? And we're reaping the whirlwind. There are just some natural built-in consequences to sin. But there's a fifth kind of wrath. And this is the wrath of abandonment, which I mentioned in the introduction. It is God's removing his hand of restraining grace, just letting people or nations pursue their sin and then experience its consequences. It's God abandoning them to suffer the effects, the consequences of their sinful choices. One commentator described it this way. It is a form of God's wrath in which he lets go of a society and lets it catapult full speed without restraint in the direction of its own sinful desires and devices and choices. God spoke about this through the psalmist in Psalm 81. In Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12, God said this. He said, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. And so what happened? Next verse. So I, God, gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 to 31, this is what we read. Because I have called you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will, also, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. 
When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, or in light of that, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. In other words, they're going to get exactly what they want, and they're going to get it with no restraint. God, he's saying, I'm stepping back, and I'm just leaving them to the consequences of their own sinful choices. In Hosea, the prophet Hosea, chapter 4, verse 17, we read, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. Now, you would have thought that God would say, Ephraim is joined to idols, go get him back. But he didn't. God abandoned them to their own sin. Leave them alone. Of the Pharisees, Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 15, 14, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Again, as I said a few moments earlier, we have Acts 14, 16, where Paul said, in past generations, he, God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. This is the wrath of abandonment. And this is the wrath being described here in Romans chapter 1, when Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. This is what he's speaking about. And let me just show you how we know this. Look down at verse 24. You see in verse 24 the first word, therefore. This means we are now going to see a description that connects to what has just been said in verses 18 to 23. In verse 24 it says, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Three times in those verses you have the statement, God gave them up. Another way to describe that phrase would be God abandoned them. God's wrath is constantly being revealed when he gives men up to their sinfulness, and that in itself is his wrath. Because God could restrain men, but he is so angry with their sin that he lets them go and the consequences of their own sin is the outworking of God's wrath. I mean, men today who live their life in sin are seeing the wrath of God unfolding through the result of their own sinfulness. And we see it all over the place. I mean, the terrible disasters that come into people's lives because of their continual sin, that's the present expression of the wrath of God. And we're going to see this as we go through this passage. And there comes a time when God abandons men. God comes to a point where he just lets a people go, lets them go to the consequences of their own sin. And so as strange as it may seem, God's present wrath, his wrath of abandonment, punishes men by giving them exactly what they want. God gives men more rope, so to speak, allowing them to plunge more deeply into sin. Sin itself is a judgment. I mean, sin is not a reward, it's a curse. 
And so to allow men to drink more deeply from the cup of sin is judgment. It is the present expression of the wrath of God. But God not only reveals his wrath by giving unbelievers what they want. He sometimes chastens Christians by giving them what they want. Giving them what they want out of their lusts and sinful desires. And Paul does not tell us that God only reveals his wrath presently uh, on the unbelieving, but rather that he is presently revealing his wrath toward all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So it seems that Paul includes here the sins of all men, both saved and unsaved. Because a God who is righteous takes all sins seriously, including the sins of his people. And the psalmist wrote in Psalm 106, verses 13 to 15, speaking of God's people, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And then what happened? And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. There are times when our desires are not godly desires, but simply fleshly lusts and desires. And we might deceive ourselves about these, thinking that they're from God, and and we may persist in praying that God give them to us, and he might just do that. But it's sometimes the discipline of God and not a blessing. I mean, one of the worst things that God can do is let you have what you want. And it may be that God is allowing us to have our fill of some desire only to see how empty it really was. And God may give us what we desire in order to change our desires. And so God's wrath of abandonment should be a motivating truth. It should be a a fearful reality, a, a deterrent to sin. And it should be for the unsaved the motivation to turn in faith to God for salvation. When Paul says here in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, he's speaking about God's wrath of abandonment. And who is this wrath of abandonment from heaven directed toward? We'll look back at the verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God's wrath of abandonment is constantly being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, what do those two words mean? What do the words ungodliness and unrighteousness mean? Well, they're, they're basically synonyms which combine the thoughts of sin against God and sin against men. Ungodliness refers to a lack of reverence for God and His Word, even rebellion against Him, a a lack of worship of the true God. Whereas unrighteousness includes the idea of ungodliness, but focuses on its result in our relations toward others. And so these two terms uh, refer to two different aspects of sin, and Paul has put them in this order for an important reason. Ungodliness is always the root sin, and unrighteousness flows from it. And godliness was the first sin when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And this led to separation from God, which then led to alienation between them and eventually to the sin that caused Cain to murder his brother Abel. And so our first 
and basic problem is that we disregard and disobey God. And this then leads to our sins against one another. You know, people today wonder why man is so evil and so inhumane to man. Well, it's because man has no reverence of God and his word and, and rebels against him. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Man is a hater of God, and because a man's relation to God is wrong, his relation to others is going to be wrong. As one man said, the reason people treat others the way they do is because they treat God the way they do. Ungodliness always leads to unrighteousness. So God's wrath is constantly being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, the wrath of God is revealed against sin because God hates sin. And unfortunately, tragically, it's not unfortunate, it's tragic. So many in the evangelical church today have uh, painted this picture of God where he's this kindly old gentleman sitting in heaven in his rocking chair just winking at sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. God hates sin. In fact, sin is the only thing God hates. And no man will ever enter God's presence with sin. One commentator wrote, sin is the only thing God hates. He doesn't hate poor people or rich people, dumb people or smart people, untalented people or highly skilled people. He only hates the sin that those people and all others naturally practice. And sin invariably brings his wrath. Lastly, in verse 18, we see the reason for God's wrath. Look again at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? by their unrighteousness or by their sin, suppress the truth. One commentator said uh, this phrase could be rendered, those who are constantly attempting to suppress the truth by steadfastly holding to their sin. The word translated here is suppressing. It means to hold down. It means to press down with force against something that is exercising a counterforce. So picture in your mind, if you will, a, a giant steel spring that takes the full weight of a human being standing on it to press it down. And because of the tension, the, 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 uh, the, the, the back pressure, the person lets go for a second, the spring is going to shoot right up. And so this suppression of the truth is not passive. Rather, it's active. It, it carries the idea of intentionally holding something down. And so Paul opens our eyes to the fact that all who are without Christ are constantly, actively in the process of resisting, opposing, holding down, suppressing the truth, and therefore they're subject to God's wrath. And listen, you cannot suppress the truth you don't know, right? You cannot suppress something you do not know, right? You have to know the truth to suppress the truth. Well, what is the truth that men suppress? Well, you have to come back next week to find out. <laughs> but suffice it to say, 
Paul is telling us that there is truth that God has made known about himself to mankind, which sinful man is suppressing, and that action provokes God to wrath. You see, they don't even want God in their knowledge. I mean, look down at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, literally they did not approve having God in their knowledge. And so what happened? God gave them up to a debased mind. So not wanting to have God in their knowledge is the same as suppressing truth. I mean, Christ is the truth, right? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But men do not want him in their knowledge. Why? He puts a damper on their sin. And so men don't want him in their knowledge. They don't want to know that they're accountable to God for their sin. No, they don't want God in their knowledge, so they suppress this truth. They'll exchange it. They'll distort it. They'll hide it. They'll run from it and finally become blind to it. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul is describing the great apostasy and deception that will come on the world in the last days. And he says that the lawless one will come, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, why do they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So those who are deceived in unrighteousness don't receive the love of the truth. What do they do? Well, they suppress the truth. They don't love the truth. They don't want the truth. Why? Well, he continues in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Why? That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Why did God, why did they reject the truth and suppress the truth and not love the truth? Because they took pleasure in unrighteousness. Because you see, when you love sin, you cannot love the truth. The truth is too threatening. The truth threatens to take away your sinful pleasures. And that's why so often when a Christian is is living in sin and they know it, it, it puts a damper then on their delight for God and the things of God. And so you begin to see them less and less. Why? Because the truth is truth threatening. They don't, want to, they don't want to give up their sinful pleasure. And that's what unrighteousness is. It is loving sin more than loving God and His truth. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light, or you could say the truth, has come into the world. And then what did He say? And people love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It's a love and hate issue, isn't it? People love darkness. Why? Jesus said it's because their deeds are evil. That is, they're unrighteous. Light and truth would expose that. Darkness, on the other hand, conceals it. And therefore, men suppress the truth and so protect the ugliness of their desires with darkness. And then Jesus said in John 3, verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Well, there it is. Why won't men come to the light? Why won't men come to the truth? Because of unrighteousness. Because of sin. Men hate the light. They evade it if they can. They 
And, and if they can't, they'll twist it and distort it and, and give it a self-justifying spin. But in all of this, what are they doing? They're suppressing it. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The reason man evades, twists, distorts, manipulates, and suppresses the truth of God is not mainly that he is mentally deficient, but rather because he is morally deficient. He suppresses the light of God's glory and power because he loves the darkness of his independence. He loves his sins, his self-determination, and therefore he suppresses the truth that God is God and that he is to depend upon God and to live for his glory. And this, Paul says, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, is why the wrath of God is being poured out. The suppression of the truth because of our love affair with unrighteousness makes him furious. Because he hates sin. And we should tremble at that. Is there any hope? Certainly there is, as I said earlier. There's great hope. Because it doesn't lie within us doesn't lie within a, a, a political party. Now the hope lies in verses 16 and 17 where Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's our hope. Our hope is in the gospel. Because we are unrighteous, and in our unrighteousness suppress the truth, our only hope is the gospel, and that the righteousness that God demands from us would be freely given to us. And it is, it is, Christ's own righteousness is offered to man in the gospel to be received by faith. Isn't that glorious? And you can have that righteousness this morning because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who paid the debt so that everyone who believes in him might be saved. I mean, the good news is Christ has taken the full fury of God's wrath for our sin if people will accept his gracious sacrifice. I mean, think of it. Christ took the judgment for those who believe. What an amazing, glorious truth. But for those who do not believe, well, they'll take their own judgment. And the eternal wrath of God awaits them because they know the truth. No matter what they claim, they know the truth. But they suppress it because of their own sin. It's very sad, isn't it? Multitudes of people 
are dying in their sin and heading into an eternal hell where they will experience eternal wrath. I mean, God is by nature a Savior. And he's saying, why? Why will you die? Why will you die when you could turn to Christ and be saved? But for you and I as believers, there is cause for rejoicing in this passage. Because for us, that, that eternal wrath of God, it's been extinguished. That eternal wrath of God has been extinguished forever in and through the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ. He is our propitiation. So all of us who have been saved by grace through faith, we stand under uh, the umbrella of God's grace, if you can say it that way. We are forever sheltered and protected from the terrible eternal wrath of Almighty God. And that in itself is great reason to praise and and to give God the glory forever and ever, is it not? of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.